Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? Another week. And of course, there's some COVID news. And I think there's some interesting trends that have happening that we haven't heard in the past. And the long-awaited booster that has been in the news, there's some regulation and regulators last month just authorized that. And people over the age of 65 and those that have high risk of severe COVID-19 are now eligible and so that that's some new things. I think I think maybe more importantly, or at least more newsworthy, is this idea of an oral antiviral against COVID-19. Merck just reported some really great results in some early studies um, in, a, in a race to kind of get some treatment for mild to moderate COVID-19. And that's some great news. But um, I just find it fascinating that the, the lightning speed at which we're moving, and part of that may have to do with the partnership model, right? If you look at the study, Merck is partnering with a company called Ridgeback Biotherapeutics. And this is where their data is coming from. And thanks to this rapidly evolving trend, this trend of partnership model in the pharma industry, um, I think that is really creating this kind of explosive speed to market when it comes to curative and preventative medicines. Yeah, Ryan, what I think is so great about this news from Merck is that it's really filling a gap, right, in our war on the COVID-19 pandemic. Another another thing in our arsenal, right? I think the booster news was very much a way to, we've been so focused on vaccination as one of our key steps out of our current situation, but having an effective oral treatment really helps decrease the load that we're seeing on our hospitals by preventing people from getting to that severe point in their COVID-19 case um, and giving them an option that is not only effective, but easily accessible um, due to its oral formulation. Right. There's so many big meetings coming up on October 14th and 15th to also address um, some of the activities that we're seeing around COVID. So we have uh, Pfizer, right, submitting their official um, filing for a pediatric indication for ages five to 11. Uh, we have the booster shot, right, for J&J. And we also have this idea of mix and match, right? So we are starting to, to think about what do booster shots mean? And I think the real question out there is going to be if somebody received a, a Moderna vaccine earlier in the year, could they receive a Pfizer vaccine or booster shot because they're built off of the same um, RNA platform, or is a J&J booster shot equally as effective? So a lot of this is being left up to the FDA to weigh in on. And I think that October 14th and 15th, we are going to hear a lot more information about some of these major activities that um, are playing themselves out right now. Outside of the continuous COVID-19 news that we've all been closely following, I've been loving that we've seen actually some updates from some stories that we covered in trending news episodes over the summer, getting some you know new rulings, some new issuances of guidance that have really provided key updates on a few topics. Yeah, Jen, I think the, the one that I've been paying attention to is the Pfizer copay assistance 
ruling. So um, we talked about earlier this summer that Pfizer had basically looked to the courts to land a verdict on whether they could continue to launch copay assistance to Medicare patients. Unfortunately for Pfizer and, and perhaps the rest of the life sciences industry, the ruling came back that these types of activities would likely violate kickback laws, which there has been the same argument that has been used for copay cards that life sciences companies have adopted for years now in trying to help patients land access to products. So I think that Pfizer was really hoping that they would be able to find another way to assist Medicare beneficiaries in, in accessing products that would be especially important to them. And I think this ruling really kind of, once again, puts up a roadblock for life sciences companies as they think about how they can provide assistance to patients in helping them afford therapies that are important. And ultimately, when I look at this ruling, I think to myself, like, who, who gets impacted the most? It's patients. And that gets harder and harder for them to access products. And especially with this population, the Medicare population, which we know struggles with affordability when it comes to their medications. And so this ruling is, is really somewhat of a, I think, a downer for the life sciences industry as they think and try to solve creatively for providing more accessible products at a more affordable price. Yeah, another piece of this ruling, Mindy, that could still be a TBD to say is um, that piece around using a patient charity to cover out-of-pocket costs. Even though the judge did add that it was premature to decide um, whether kickback laws would be violated, it was really on the grounds that the specific details of the program proposed by Pfizer were still ill-defined and vague. So I'll be curious to see if other life science companies maybe push it a bit further, get more specific to pursue that as an option. The terms ill-defined and vague are probably huge indicators, right? That if you're going to try to go down this path, make sure that there's specificity in the how and the what you're going to do when it comes to trying to partner with charities to provide these types of programs. Speaking of patience and consumerism, there was also something in the news in the last week or so that caught our attention. Uh, and it's something we've been talking about all summer. And it's the idea of surprise billing. And the Department of Health and Human Services, along with the Labor and Treasury Department, released the third interim final rule. And this one, which is kind of in conjunction with the other ones, builds on that initial rule that banned, like I said, the balance billing for emergency services and for prohibiting out-of-network charges. This rule is really detailing on how a new class of medical billing arbitration folk or arbiters will actually decide the fair price for emergency medical care, which is, if you think about it, the amount of the American population that utilizes emergency medical care is so huge. It's also the largest source of these surprise bills. You read articles all the time about a um, cold or cough that ends up being the cost of a car or something. But this rule really is kind of tearing some of the healthcare sectors, putting each of the healthcare sectors on different sides of the fight. The rule received positive reaction from many consumer advocates and a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle. But it did disappoint emergency physicians and those groups. If you remember, Many times in health systems, uh, emergency departments are kind of owned by a group of physicians outside of the hospital, and they fear 
that it's going to lead to unle unreasonably low rates. And, and there is so much complexity in the ER that there is some concern there. But the idea is that Secretary Becerra mentioned that, as I mentioned earlier, this rule is really meant to take patients out of the middle of this food fight, he called it. And if you have a clear roadmap, you can kind of resolve that, that food fight between the provider insurance because there's been this tug of war for years. And just some more detail on this. This latest rule really gets into the detail of the independent dispute resolution process. As I mentioned, these arbiters that are going to come in and it requires providers and the facilities that these providers work in to give uninsured patients a clear estimate of charges they can expect to receive for their services, which if you can think about, that's pretty complex and difficult under duress in an ED setting. So it'll be interesting how this plays out. Some additional information on this is the payer and the provider can initiate a 30-day open negotiation period to determine an out-of-network rate. So there's some, there's some details behind this. Um, I was thinking kind of generally about this third interim rule. Thank goodness that health systems and hospitals have really beefed up their internal legal group because making sure that these laws and rules that are coming fast and furious at health systems are being communicated across the system is just vitally important. And meanwhile, right, health plans actually cheered the rules decision and felt that the way it, it landed was fair and the way that they would go about addressing these independent dispute resolutions really fit kind of what America's health insurance plans were looking for. So I think in the end, you have providers that are probably not very happy with where this interim final rule landed. And then you have health plans that feel like it landed in the right place. So we will see, right, how this starts to actually come to life when it goes into effect on January 1st. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat concerning. Typically, Mindy, you and I have been around this for a while. When you hear one side is very excited or, or elated about a ruling and another side is not, it gives me a little bit of pause. I actually prefer when both sides are a little dismayed. Insurers and payers are coming off some pretty successful years from a financial sustainability perspective. And so we'll, we'll just see how this plays out. When I mean, you think about the movement we're seeing with providers acquiring plans, plans acquiring providers, or you know, morphing into what we call payviders, what happens when those types of entities come up against this rule? I mean, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. In other emerging news for health plans, coming up is also the open enrollment period of Medicare Advantage and Part D, which is really huge in terms of when you think of the impact that has on American individuals. Recent data has shown that enrollment in Medicare Advantage plans has more than doubled over the past decade reaching more than 26 million members or about 42% of the Medicare population. And CMS released data that they project enrollment will reach almost 30 million next year, which is a growth of about 3 million more when you think about enrollment in 2021. And the major plans are coming out with some really interesting information on how they're going to be trying to compete in this marketplace. When you look at the growth in Medicare, we know that we are just starting this big bolus of, of individuals that are aging into Medicare. So it's a super growth area for plans. And I think this is the one area we see in healthcare 
where plans have an opportunity to really practice the idea of consumerism, right? Because it's one-to-one marketing. And in a highly competitive marketplace where consumers have choice, I think what we're starting to see this year is that plans are trying to figure out how do they differentiate themselves when there is a lot of choice for consumers to make. And they're getting creative. I mean, we are seeing companies like Anthem really starting to expand benefits, supplemental benefits like dental, vision, and hearing services, which have long been carved out from Medicare coverage. And things like healthy grocery cards, which really promotes health and wellness. So I think there's lots of really interesting and unique ways that plans are kind of putting their thinking cap on and trying to figure out how do they clear through the clutter to stand out when consumers are trying to make a choice about which plan they want to go with. And it used to be that $0 premiums was the thing that differentiated a plan. But today, that's almost table stakes. And so I think what it's forcing plans to do is really think from a consumer lens on what brings value and what would actually catch a consumer's attention to stand out and maybe acquire, you know, a more substantial portion of this growth population. CVS Aetna, uh, Cigna, these Medicare Advantage national plans are growing in geography. Well, that also means they're, they're diversifying their reach, which means they need to diversify their offerings. Mindy, you and I have been speaking about this as well, is where do kind of the regional blues play in this space for Medicare Advantage? We've seen some local blues get some really great uh, Medicare five-star ratings, which really enables year-round marketing, which gives them just another leg to compete against these enormous Medicare Advantage plans. I think more and more plans have their eye on the Medicare space, because when you just look at the sheer numbers of individuals that are aging into this market, there is significant opportunity to really think about how to engage these members in a more long-term sustainable relationship because there is no middle intermediary deciding what kind of coverage is available. It really is consumer to plan directly. And so I think the Blues plans have opportunity here The challenge is going to be that you're up against really strong and large national health plans that have a lot more means to be able to invest in this market. So I think what what Blues plans have an opportunity to do or think about is like, how do they really optimize in the regional locale where they play and personalize the experience so that they're not only acquiring this population, but they're able to drive loyalty, which will really be kind of the key to success, I think, for Blue's plans to be able to compete in this marketplace. And let's not forget, I mean, Anthem is made up of a large portion of Blue's plans, but there are those regional Blue's plans that also want to play in this space and, and have, to a certain extent, played successfully. I think the key to success for them is going to be how do they engender loyalty so that they're not having to continue to invest in heavy acquisition activity because it costs so much to do so. As always, Mindy and Ryan, the only constant in the healthcare industry has changed. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. 
Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.